So you have God as author and you have Jesus as word made flesh. And then it talks about the spirit, it's the spirit of truth. And I like to think of like truth. If, if God is the author and Jesus is the word made flesh, then spirit is like the genre. You're listening to the Pocket Pulpit Podcast with Sarah Kinzer and Hector Martinez, part of the TCD Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome once again to the Pocket Pulpit Podcast, part of the Digital Church Podcast Network. Uh, finally said it right after, you know, a whole season, half season of episodes, but um, we're so excited uh, for, for this episode. Um, so excited that you, you guys are with us in this journey of exploring social media and ministry um, and just this idea of online ministry. What is it? How can it be done? Um, what is the impact of the internet in ministry? And uh, just what are some best practices? These are the questions that we like to explore and talk to people that we come across um, on the internet. And so today we, we've got a, a new friend to, to us, uh, Dr. Valerie Hobbs with us. Hey, hey, Valerie. Hello. Hi. And of course, we've got our co-host, Sarah. But Sarah, I have to apologize because I always forget to introduce you. Okay. I'm so sorry. Well, I'm always here. Yeah. Uh, I, I listened to another podcast and uh, in, I think this week, yeah, this week's episode, they got about 10 minutes in and the co-host is like, oh, by the way, Doc's here. Doc's here. He's, he's on the other side of the call. So, Well, you're beating them. Take that other podcast. <laughs> um, well, today, today we're going to talk about uh, kind of a, an interesting topic. So uh, Dr. Valerie is uh, a linguist at the University of she- Sheffield. That's right. Uh, so the University of Sheffield and the author of Introduction to Religious Language, Exploring Theolinguistics in Contemporary Contexts. So we're, we're really glad to have you here. We're looking forward to what we expect to be a pretty mind-blowing conversation. So if you let us down, <laughs> there will be consequences. Uh, <laughs> We want to know, no like, pressure. yeah, yeah, no, I, we, you come highly recommended. So we doubt you're going to let us down, but we want to start off by knowing the snippet of like, who are you, who are your people, what's your world, just a little bit about you as a person. Oh goodness. That's a, I'll try to give you the, the highlights. So you might've guessed from my accent, although I live in England and I'm a British citizen, I was born in the United States. Um, I was born into a kind of agrarian cult in Alaska. And so that, you know, that, that, <laughs> that was quite formative for my, for my life in a lot of ways. I feel like I'm, you know, still, still processing that, but, you know, I, I've got a lot of experience in a lot of different extremist religious communities, having been born in that, in that community, which was, you know, sort of like get back to the, get back to the earth reject all forms of technology. We can get this right if we just, you know, isolate ourselves and like Garden of Eden style, get, you know, that, that was a massive disaster, as you might expect. And then as a child, my parents moved me into a slightly less extremist group, which was one of those, uh, a hyper-reformed denomination in Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia. And I spent the rest of my childhood in this very oppressive, patriarchal, abusive environment, which again, you know, was, was extremely important for me in, in, you know, I, again, I've sort of spent the rest of my life recovering from that, but 
you know, I've, I've moved in a, you know, since then I, I left when I was 18. I went into, you know, I went to the PCA, the Presbyterian church of America's college covenant college. I graduated from there. And at that point I began sort of moving in different kind of religious circles, trying to get a sense of what else was out there. And in 2004, I moved with my husband to England and have been living here since then. And I've been an academic for about 20 years now. And a lot of my research has been ultimately, I mean, sort of about making sense of how language is a key part of control, of, of the abuse of authority, especially in religious communities, and also how truth-telling is a mechanism to be liberated from that. So my, my book, has come out of very real situations. It's, it's, you know, all my theory has, is, um, been developed in connection with people in real situations, particularly in, in places of violence. And my, my main interest is in telling the truth and in helping to free other people from, from these kind of systems of, of extremism. So that's a kind of snapshot. It's it's a, I, I could say a lot more, but I think that connection to people has been really important for me in my life. Um, that that was how I managed to get out is finding people who were different, who who embodied love and community in a way that was denied to me in my really formative years. Wow. Well, that sounds. I'm glad to know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great response. <laughs> like, I'm glad to know that. I want to know like a million more things. That makes my mind just work. We also want to know what platforms you're on and what's your preferred platform. My students tell me I'm really behind on this, but you know, I, I use Twitter a lot. I'm on Facebook, less and less Facebook. I, I mainly use Twitter, I guess. My students are like, oh, you need to get on TikTok. You need to get, I, I haven't, I haven't done that, <laughs> but I, I love social media. I love the tools that are available to us online. I think they're, they, they just present such great opportunities and I view them really positively. I love TikTok, even though I'm not on it. I love it. Well, good. So you're at least using it. So, so we're halfway there. <laughs> All right. Hey there, Jeff from the church digital, digital church network here. We're going to get you back to the podcast here in a second. Sarah, Hector, thanks for letting me borrow the audience. Church, we've got an incredible opportunity to help churches like yours connect with spiritual explorers digitally. Now, maybe you've heard of this thing, He Gets Us. You've seen their ads on the NFL games or social media or even billboards around town. You see, He Gets Us is a U.S.-based ad campaign that connects people seeking spiritual answers with pastors and volunteers who have the answers to these spiritual questions and ultimately connects them to your physical or digital church. This is a great opportunity that's only going to expand as he gets us is running several Super Bowl ads. That's right. Imagine the potential reach and your church can be a part of this for free. That's right. You get 12 months of he gets us, 12 months of spiritual explorers, 12 months of the technology, uh, the platform, all of it for free. No strings attached, no hidden fees. We just want to get people connected to God through the church. So here's what we want you to do. For more information and to sign up, go to thechurch.digital. 
slash he gets us. That's thechurch.digital slash he gets us. Or for questions, feel free to text me, 484-324-8724. Hector, Sarah, let me hand it back to y'all. Thank you. All right. Hey there, Jeff from the Church Digital, Digital Church Network here. We're going to get you back to the podcast here in a second. Sarah, Hector, thanks for letting me borrow the audience. Church, we've got an incredible opportunity to help churches like yours connect with spiritual explorers digitally. Now, maybe you've heard of this thing, He Gets Us. You've seen their ads on the NFL games or social media or even billboards around town. You see, He Gets Us is a U.S.-based ad campaign that connects people seeking spiritual answers with pastors and volunteers who have the answers to these spiritual questions and ultimately connects them to your physical or digital church. This is a great opportunity that's only going to expand as he gets us as running several Super Bowl ads. That's right. Imagine the potential reach and your church can be a part of this for free. That's right. You get 12 months of he gets us. 12 months of Spiritual Explorers, 12 months of the technology, uh, the platform, all of it for free. No strings attached, no hidden fees. We just want to get people connected to God through the church. So here's what we want you to do. For more information and to sign up, go to thechurch.digital slash he gets us. That's thechurch.digital slash he gets us. Or for questions, Feel free to text me, 484-324-8724. Hector, Sarah, let me hand it back to y'all. Thank you. Uh, well, can you can you give us a little bit of the backstory? Um, where, where did you get interested in linguistics? Because, I mean, I would... I would assume that linguistics isn't something that you just like happen to decide to do. There's a little bit of probably some backstory there, but not just about what inspires you to, to study it, but then also to teach it. Yeah. I mean, I think I was, when I was young, I was always, I was always reading. I was interested in language, particularly written language. And I was kind of good at grammar and, um, I just had a kind of natural ability with that. When I was at university, I had one professor who was really different from everyone else. And he just said to me, you seem to be good at this. It was, he was, a, the, he taught the one linguistics class at Covenant College. And he just kind of took me under his wing and was really encouraging to me and said, you're good at this. And I think this is something you could do. And at that time, you know, my, my professor, one of my professors refused to write a recommendation for me for grad school because I was a woman. And he, this other professor was just outraged by that and said, we're getting you in, you know, you, you've got to do this now. So he was kind of, he launched me in, into post-grad study. And I just, I, I just was fascinated by it as a mainly, I mean, I think a lot of it was because I myself had been harmed by language. I mean, I, language was used as a tool among other things, but language was a significant tool in my own oppression as a child. It created a cage around me, um, a world. And I, I was interested in how that happened. You know, how can language itself, you know, it, how can that be used to kind of create this universe where it seems like everything outside of it is frightening and 
scary and dangerous and even evil, even evil. Um, so I, I was just so interested in that and I wanted to understand how that happened so I could, you know, break free of it myself, but also so that I could talk about it. And so I've, I've been really fortunate that I've had mentors and people who have helped me along the way. That's been unique. And I, and I look at my peers that I grew up with and, and there were many of us who did not have that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's completely a point of privilege that I have to acknowledge that it, you know, I think there were other people that I grew up with that were very good at things, but they just never met the right people. And I had that. I was I was really lucky enough to to meet people who encouraged me and pushed me that way. I want to know as we start the conversation off, I want to uh, hear a little bit of your term definitions. Like, what is religious language? What is theolinguistics? Like, are we just talking about the language used by the church in in church, like Christianese, or is it more than that? So, I mean, yeah, I I take a really broad view of religious language. Some people would call it sacred language. So religious language is, is anything that is used to set aside, to mark some aspect of the world as special, as sacred, as different from the ordinary. And that could be something that's not just, you know, wonderful and amazing, but also something that is to be, that is taboo. So it's, it's the kind of the best and the worst and the language that we use to identify those things um, and ultimately to answer questions. It's, it's, it's language that sort of speaks to questions about our, who we are, our, our identity, you know, fundamental the, theological and philosophical questions about where the world came from. You know, is there a God? Is, is there right and wrong? Um, what, what should we be doing? Where is there life after death? So language that is used to articulate, describe, to make sense of these very, very deep questions about, about life. And, and so we can use religious language to, if, if food is the mo is something that is really significant to us, we will use language to describe that. And it, so it doesn't have to be you know, it, it doesn't have to be language that's associated with the church, for example, but it often is because, I mean, let's say, so if we're members of kind of Western society where Christianity is dominant, even people who are not Christian will draw upon Christian language in order to mark something as special, because that's the language that they're familiar with. That's sort of a kind of sacred way of speaking. But, other, you know, in, in Great Britain, for example, Christianity is, is not as dominant. So you, you find, you know, other, other kinds of language that's used. Um, but, I mean, that, that's kind of, it's, it's a difficult, I don't know, how can I say this? It has fuzzy boundaries. So I guess, you know, the, the kind of easiest way to identify religious language is to look for languages associated with the world religion. But I also see religious language as popping up anytime people are talking about what's most important to them or what they um, want nothing to do with. I consider all of that religious talk. What would that sound like? So, you know, OK, I'll, I'll give an example that's in my book. So, you know, I, I've done a bit of work on the discourse of feminism and, you know, feminism means different things to different people, but some people certainly will connect the concept of feminism with their core identity. 
So they'll talk about feminism as something that spoke them into existence or they, they found their ultimate meaning in feminism. So that kind of language, ultimate meaning, or a language that positions it as special or different in a way that they, you know, they sort of identify that they're the core of themselves with it. I consider that religious. Now, the words ultimate are not, that's not more common in Christianity or Buddhism or Islam. But again, it's a kind of signifies specialness. I guess, yeah, like I, I kind of hear the, almost like the guidelines, the language around guidelines of maybe not always, but kind of the morals, you know, and the, um, yeah, what it is to be good or right, or um, especially in the talking of self, right, is what, I, what I'm picking up, I think. Yeah, and, you know, that. Religious language tends to pop up at certain times. So, you know, if there's a crisis, people will, will begin to talk about things that are most important to them. Mm -hmm. um, or if they're high stakes or, you know, if they're, if, you know, if, if it's a moment of huge significance, like, you know, there's been a death. Those are the times when people tend to use religious language. So I look to those places to see how people are talking to help me understand how religious language works. Because again, it's those, those really important moments in our lives where we tend to re-articulate what's most important to us. It's a, it's a kind yeah. of grounding. Yeah. So uh, from your, your intro, it's kind of talking about your background, you know, and your interest in linguistics and language. You, you mentioned... Essentially, you laid the groundwork that like it can be used for harm, the way we use language. And so I'm curious uh, of your thoughts. Or why, why does understanding how religious language is used matter just beyond the church? Um, should it matter to the secular world? Well, I mean, we're we're seeing globally a huge rise in extremist violence. I mean, th this is something that is a crisis um, globally. Yeah. And it's, you know. Religion is a is a tool that is being weaponized in a lot of extremist behavior, maybe for obvious reasons, because people feel very strongly about religion. Religion creates a sense of identity and purpose, but it's not always religion. It, you know, there's some some versions of white supremacy that are, you know, avowedly atheist. So, you know, it, extremism matters. We, we, we're all, especially kind of with I mean, I've, I've talked about how I love social media and mass media. I think it's a great tool, but it's also dangerous in terms of the extent to which it, it's a mechanism to spread extremism easily. And particularly, you know, I mean, again, this is not just a problem in the United States. It's a problem in Great Britain. It's a problem in, in many other parts of the world, in Spain. Um, people lack critical media skills. And, you know, if you combine that with issues like, you know, people's sense of isolationism or poverty, religious extremism is, you know, it's attractive. So, you know, I, I think religious language has incredible positive power, but it's something we should care about because it is frequently exploited for harm by every extremist group. 
I mean, every extremist group will use some form of religious language, um, whether that's explicitly associated with world religion or some other way of talking. Think, like thinking about that and like as we prepared for this conversation, I was reminded of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And so he goes out and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the tempter comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus is like, no, thanks. But he quotes scripture. And then so then the devil responds by quoting in the second temptation, he quotes scripture to Jesus. Like he uses the word of God and he says, um, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, just like Jesus said, it is written. So then the devil comes for it's written. He will, I, the devil sounds really sassy in my retelling. Sorry. He will command, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answers him. It's also written. Do not put your Lord the Lord your God to a test. And then there's the third temptation and Jesus tells him to go away and the devil goes away and the angels come and attend to him. And that always, like, I love that note in Matthew that the angels came and attended to him because what, what the devil used to tempt Jesus, um, he twisted it and he was trying to use the scripture to create harm and Jesus didn't fall for it. And then at the end, you see that it is true that what was in scriptures, the angels would come and attend to him. Like that came true. That was, that was fulfilled, but it wasn't like Satan tried to use that, tried to use truth to trick Jesus or to tempt him into taking control over a situation or asserting himself differently than God intended for him to fulfill his ministry. And so this isn't a new thing scripture and the word of God being used, we can look and your, your book examines it in the contemporary context, but we it's in the Bible, you know, it's throughout humanity. What is it that, do you have any guess as to what is in our nature that wants to pervert these good things and use them for power and control? I think we're always building Babel. We're always building the tower of Babel. And this is our, you know, this is the consequence of um, what happened in the Garden of Eden, that 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 desire to reach heaven using human hands is something that has been repeated and repeated and repeated over and over and over. And in that way, you know, sin is pretty simple. <laughs> I mean, I think you, your, your example is so wonderful because it, it shows how this, you know, <laughs> The devil is actually pretty basic. Think about who God is. God is wonderfully mysterious and complex and beautiful and magnificent and multifaceted. The devil is basic. And so, you know, the devil is going to be using the same kind of mechanics to tempt us over and over, yet we keep falling for it because we have this impulse to do it ourselves. And, you know, I, I just, I, I saw this great quote on, on Twitter recently by um, a liberation theologian, Nel Salvadorian. Um, his name's Ignacio El Curia. And I wrote it down because I thought it was quite useful for us to talk about, talking about these structures, you know, Babel. So it's, a, it's not that structures can sin, as some claim liberationists say, 
but structures demonstrate and actualize the power of sin. And in this sense, make people sin and make it supremely difficult for them to lead the lives that belong to them as children of God. So the kind of impulse to, to get to heaven by ourselves means that we are constantly, you know, looking for ways to distort the truth in a way that puffs us up. And, you know, we, we're, we're building these, you know, big denominations and these big kind of hierarchical structures and everything that make us feel good about ourselves. And, you know, it's a tale as old as time. I, I think about particularly with the, the Tower of Babel, like you, you see people coming together to, to build up and to try to, be, to overthrow God. And there's this division of language which slows them down and slows down our ability to come together in that way, right? And you think about the current context of language, like we have tools that help us understand each other's language better that help us. I mean, we've got Google Translate now, you know, Google Translate can lead you down some bad roads. <laughs> Do not rely on Google Translate. Uh, certainly not if you're speaking in public. That's my little pro tip. But we have these tools that are designed to help us communicate faster and across different divides. And yet we remain divided or our divisions increase. And so we think that we are overcoming these language divides. And yet like uh, that confusion is just exploding. The, the more the tool is there to facilitate language, the wider the division or the becomes that's, Well, I think that, you know, if I can talk about Babel again, because I absolutely love the story of the Tower of Babel. And I think we often think about God, you know, confusing people and giving them different languages and spreading them was was a kind of curse. Like, oh, if only we could get back together, if only we could all speak the same language. But actually, I think it was a blessing. God was blessing us in 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 confounding that that kind of mob and making it so that we would be in smaller groups. <laughs> I think this is maybe somewhat controversial, but you know, I think often about what Jesus said in Matthew 18 about two or three are, where two or three are gathered. It's not where thousands and thousands and thousands are gathered and all speak the same language. It's it's these micro communities where you know, you have really mysterious and revolutionary things happening in small spaces in secret and quiet spaces. And so I see language as an incredible gift, the diversity of language, the diversity of our of our cultures and communities is a gift. And the kind of enemy of those things is actually the things that you've been talking about, the kind of where everyone is forced together in this big public space. And we're you know, we're all together, but we're more divided than ever. And what we need is a kind of, you know, a return to those more intimate, more vulnerable spaces. Um, and I say that even though, again, I, I love social media and I think it's a great tool. But, you know, I also understand this kind of other side to it that I think bigger is not better. More people is not better. That also makes me think of like the time and energy that we spent in the megachurch movement, you know, making it bigger yeah. and bigger. And I mean, I've thought about that a lot this week. I, I thought <laughs> the other night I thought to myself, I feel like the like the nineties, those Jesus and apology, like, <laughs> you know, like yeah. we were so 
dedicated to a growth model and to getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I listen to, I go back and listen to David Platt in one of his secret church recordings where he talks about how like he's afraid he's become part of a system that has so has become so good at strategy and plans that there's no more need of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And yeah, that's good. Like we see the, like, oh, my heart aches with every rock that's overturned. And we see the underneath of what we built in the, in the nineties and, and the turn of the century. And, and how like we had just stacked things one on top of you without concern about what was underneath. And now these rocks are being turned over. Babel's being broken down again. You know, that's it. I think, I think that, that as much as we are constantly building up, God is settling it back down again mm-hmm. and disrupting that in. And that's, I think the, this, Again, you know, this is sort of stuff I, I just think about a lot, but just how how I think the spirit is ultimately disruptive <laughs> in that sense of, you know, where we have institutions, where we have these structures, where we have these, you know, building up and building up. The work of the spirit is on unsettling that and doing really unexpected and surprising things that our structures had not planned for. And that's where the beauty and the mystery is. Um, that's what I look for. I get excited about. Uh, one and again, I mean, I'm just kind of tying this back to your thought earlier of like Babel being uh, uh, an act of grace or an act of blessing, and yeah. in that, like God didn't allow it, and and still to this day, the Spirit is at work not allowing things. Like there is a, a time that He allows it, and that He does the work to bring it bring it to its knees. Right? Um, it's empire. Yeah, it's, that's so. I'm just, I'm kind of, uh, it's kind of in my head, just firing off all all sorts of cylinders. This is fascinating. <laughs> well, I was really, I mean, your your prompt was so good for this for this session. Thinking about radicalization, and I was thinking about the kind of um, tension in the concept of ra- radicalization. That the sort of connected to what we're talking about, you know, there's a kind of radicalization that is involved in Babel building. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the kind of you know, I mean, if we just say, state the ex- obvious examples like the Christian nationalism, white supremacy, that's involved in in accruing and amassing power and eliminating the other. Um, so elevating a certain, you know, ourselves and whoever represents, you know, whatever we, we, we value the most and then expelling everyone else. But we're, you know, it's about amassing power, that radicalization, that extremism is something that I abhor. And I think is against, you know, it's, it's not, (laughs) this is what the spirit disrupts, but then there's another kind of radicalization, you know, this kind of opposition to some kind of status quo that is systemic, that is institutional, that is stifling the work of the spirit or attempting to stifle the work of the spirit. That is, and, and it's a difficult one because I mean, like my university has put this initiative forward and like, we all laughed about it in the meeting a bit because they're like, or, you know, we want to like be watching out for extremism, but the things they were talking about were like the things that make institutions good, like asking hard questions and, you know, unsettling things that are 
become too accepted. Um, there, there's a good radical, radicalization. And so if we kind of go back to social media use, it has that also kind of duality that, that, that you know, you, it can be used for really bad purposes or it can be used for really good disruption. So, I, yeah, I, I'm always like, I, I view my, especially my, my work on Twitter as I'm, I'm there to be a thorn in, 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 in the side of institutions and in status quo, which is producing violence and extremism and isolationism. Um, that's the kind of radicalism that I embrace. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of, of radicalization, I mean, here in America, you know, we're seeing as we record this, the hearings of the January 6th insurrection have been shared. Um, are they still going on? Is the last one I think, today or tomorrow? But um, so they've been shared. And so we're aware, right? Like, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in this conversation that power, the power of words have to create not just response, but one, a response that is dangerous. Um, you know, Facebook's algorithm had a hand in the genocide in Myanmar, and it's now being seen in Ethiopia. And the way that uh, even just initially looking into different groups and the way that the algorithm uh, opened the doors wide. Uh, and so social media, it's changed the reality of all of this. Um, the rise of QAnon being displayed, how co-opting religious language and using online forums can create movement in minutes without a regard for truth. So we just want to hear some of your thoughts as you've seen some of this, maybe not all of it, but, but see what you have seen online, how you've watched it play out. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, you've really hit some important highlights there, I think. And I've certainly seen this on a very personal level with people that I know and that I care about who are, you know, just consuming this kind of fake news and conspiracy theory without really, <laughs> there's almost like there's no filter. They're just like taking it in. And so I'm I'm really like, you know, wondering how does this, how is this happening? Not, not because it's some thought project, because I want to, you know, I want to help them. we got to stop this somehow. Um, it's just, it's, it's so disturbing. And particularly we see the consequences, you know, you mentioned the January 6th um, violence at the Capitol. I mean, that, that was, you know, that's just one example of, of the consequences of, of this kind of discourse online. And it is just, you know, a lot of it is just discourse. People are just consuming this and then they are going out with guns. They're going out and rioting and, you know, breaking, breaking in and, and killing people. Um, and I mean, I, I know as a scholar, I understand how it's happening, um, mm. but it's, it's, it's really discouraging to see how many, you know, this is not actually a new thing. This has been decades in the making. I mean, social media has enabled the spread of this discourse, but, you know, the kind of us versus them narratives, the, the kind of anti-science, the anti-academia, the anti-med, you know, organized medicine, all that discourse has been in place for decades now. And so what we're seeing now in social media is just tapping into that pre-existing cognitive framework that a lot of people have, particularly in the United States. And I've seen it here too, in Great Britain, people are vulnerable to it. So the, and the reason that they're so vulnerable is again, because, you know, they're like, oh yeah, you know, all these conspiracies. 
Jerry Falwell was right. <laughs> you know, all, all these kind of people that have been telling us this for decades, look, they're right. And then we also have, you know, churches and systems of education, which are not equipping people with critical media literacy. There was a study on Austra in Australia that I was looking at recently about how 20% of students had could say that they had some idea how to identify fake news from, you know, legitimate reporting. That's, that's really low. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a new thing, but in, in other ways, you know, as we, as we've been talking about this whole time, it's, it's not new. It's just morphed into some other form that's much more visible. It's, is it more visible or do you think, I mean, Facebook admitted that they had their algorithm impacted things, right? And within the past year, I had to take a step back from Facebook probably a, a little over a year ago because there was, oh, it was about a year ago. It was coming up around the time that the schools were going back into session. And there was a lot of conversation about some education policies in Virginia. People were online and they were talking about rioting. They were talking about taking a stand. They were talking about showing up at schools and um, taking action and not taking no for an answer. And my husband works at a school and I it was just causing me so much anxiety with this language and the, and the, and they would use the word war. And then today I got on, I mean, this morning we had the announcement of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. And I got on Facebook and this is a completely different set of individuals than the ones who were upset by the Virginia legislature, completely different set of individuals. And I saw that word again. I saw a call for class war. And so is it just more visible or is it actually more dangerous? I mean, I... I Violence has always been part of our <laughs> humanity. You know, we, we've always found a way to be violent. So I, I kind of, having, you know, talked with people who are involved in studying right-wing right extremism particularly, uh, I mean, there's also left-wing extremism on both, both ends of the spectrum. But, you know, these are, there, there are new tools available to us now the same violence still there, you know, that we, we've, we can think of many, many examples of, you know, propaganda. And, you know, the, the one that I immediately think of is, you know, Nazi Germany, where they, they had their own mechanisms for propagating um, their propaganda. They didn't have social media. They had other things. Human nature will always find a way. Um, so I kind of, I, I'm really resistant to the kind of scare tactics around social media is the problem. I don't believe that. I don't believe social media is the problem. I think it's just one of many, it's just the latest tool. And I think Amer maybe Americans just, you know, we, we haven't seen this kind of violence before, but like my, my husband was at a conference and one of his colleagues from Italy was just like, I mean, maybe this is, this is maybe flippant, but he was just like, it's your turn. Like, you know, you Americans, it's your turn. Like you're, you're now understanding like what fascism looks like. 
And maybe that's a new thing for you, but it's been around for a long time. They've seen it in Italy before. It's been in Germany. You know, there, there's a far right party in, in Spain. We've, you know, that <laughs> China has had its own political violence. I think Americans, maybe we are, and I include myself in that, are a bit naive or, you know, sort of like a little bit inexperienced in our understanding of the reality of how violence works. And, you know, I think people are quick to kind of blame social media because it's a new thing. And it's like, well, if we stay off social media, then, you know, things will be better. No, <laughs> no, no, we won't. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I, it made me think about how when radio is becoming popular and widespread and there was, you're going to have to help me with this. Was it like the, was it called, there was that radio program that was like documenting, what is that? War of the World or something like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so like, it wasn't that, it was the introduction of this new media at a mass scale. So everybody had access to this and they were thrown into a frenzy. Now, was it, were, were they any more at risk of an alien invasion the day before than they were, or were they just manipulated into a certain fear response? Mm. You know, people were terrified by that. And, and you also think about my theater teacher in high school, you uh, told this story about going and seeing some horror movie. I can't remember. And, and by today's standards, it was relatively tame. And if we were to look at that movie, we would be like, that is so obviously fake, but people were fainting in the theaters because they'd never seen anything like this. And so it wasn't, was there risk of demon possession higher that day or were they just exposed to a new thought or a new vision of and so we're we're at another another uh push into a new form of media are we is our danger level changing and and it and it may be i mean we we know that the algorithm affects people but also we know that to some measure we have control over our, over our reactions and over, you know, we have control in the, in the, the Lord it's control of everything and we have no control. We have control. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this, this concept of fear is really important in all these things we've been talking about that, you know, extremism and all this, you know, the the kind of discourse that we see that leads people to violence always is predicated on fear. And, you know, this is something I try to tell my students a lot is if, you know, okay, there there are genuinely things that, that we should take seriously. I mean, I I don't know. It's, it's one of those things that you have to have a careful balance, but, you know, extremism thrives on fear and all these examples you've given of like where are the worlds and these films like they are designed to to make us feel vulnerable such that we will go we will we will do anything to shrink and and isolate ourselves and also to react in in potentially violent ways against perceived threat so this kind of you know we if i can boil it down to one kind of dynamic an us versus them dynamic uh i'm the goody you all are the baddies and I'm going to find my goodies, but you know, it's a kind of safe, I'm going to build this safe little space, almost like a little garden of Eden where I can be protected 
and I can achieve some kind of, you know, <laughs> almost like a heaven uh, where I'm protected, I feel safe, I'm I'm impenetrable, um, and and the mechanism to protect my borders is violence. This is essentially religious extremism, and all the things, all the kind of discourse online that drives people to that is predicated on stirring up that sense of of fear of some kind of bad thing out there that's going to get you, and so you know you you've got to take action, and so you know like you gave those examples of we've got, it's a, it's a war now. That to me is a very clear sign that it's been effective. It's just so so ironic because the the Bible invites us to be vulnerable. The Bible invites us to be to trust in the Lord, but we don't want to do that. We, we we're afraid to be vulnerable. We're afraid to trust. It's very interesting. I think uh, I was actually thinking about just you know with the Roe v. Wade stuff and, and the way that there's so many different reactions to it, but you know especially in the Christian context, there's a lot of uh, one of the big reactions is celebratory because of kind of the umbrella level uh, topic of abortion, right? And this umbrella level of pro-life, and again, talking about how we're winning this war on murder, right? Like, but, but the language that's used, like, because murder isn't some passive language like we are when we use those terms and those those actions and, and those um labels right we are we are essentially placing identity not just that will you support murder but even i i believe right as as we see those umbrella conversations happening and accusations no you are a murderer Right. Like if you even support. Right. And so this language at the umbrella level of like. As far as I can cast the net and as much as I can do so that I am right in my position. And, and it's the same on the other side, as you said, there's there's sides to, to all of this, you know, but just that that extreme language that gets used to then label other and to to say, but that's not me. That's not who I am. And so that, that's what I'm reminded of in the sense of those extreme uh, labels and arguments and language. And even, I think, uh, as I've just been thinking about language, the subtleties as well, right, of how we get to the extremes yeah. is also the way that we... the. the Again, like that subtlety of like, no, you're a murderer, like the difference between you support murder and you are a murderer uh, because of what you support. Like that's yeah, a it's a part of your thing. identity a, now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I know that was a lot. No, that's that's really a great example. I mean, the the kind of overall strategy here is a is a positive presentation of our actions Ooh. and our attributes and a negative presentation of them. Whatever we're, whatever our enemy is, whatever we're looking to distance ourselves from, we emphasize their bad things and our good things. And like, and also alternative, we de-emphasize our bad things. You know? So yeah. that's another sign where you see that people are reluctant to talk about what's bad about their own circles. You know, Ooh. everything's fine. We're doing great. It's like, you know, we've got all the good stuff here. You're all bad out there. Any kind of language that, that is involved in constructing those those very firm borders to me is 
is a is a sign is a is a a kind of red flag that extremism is is being fostered it's being constructed i mean you know again we can talk about the tension here because it's very important to name violence and to say that violence is unacceptable i i don't want anything to do with that violence i don't want anything to do with violent people but you know it's it's the extent to which I'm, you know, maybe I'm reluctant to admit that I myself have problems. I'm not some kind of person that's free of, and my community is not some person that is completely free of violence. So it's the, it's the kind of, you know, extremism thrives in environments where there are, well, extremes, you know, um, this heaven versus hell kind of on earth. We're aware of the power of, of language. Um, and and I think about, like, I, I remember being taught about propaganda in eighth grade. I remember sitting um, there and, and having whole lessons when we we're learning about the world wars, about propaganda. Um, what you talked about critical media literacy. Like, why is it that we know this and yet we're so bad? at identifying it and we fall into it. What is it that, like, what is it we need to defend ourselves from this? And, and is there, I mean, what would be your suggestion? Do we need to teach our kids? Like, and I don't, I don't just mean like this parental, like if you take it upon yourself to raise your child in this way, your child will be, but like, do we actually need something in our education? Because this is, this is the world they're going into. I think about when we switched to online education, it wasn't just this, and and we did it so fast because of COVID. It wasn't just trying to learn online, but there was this chunk of time where we had to learn how to learn online. And that was hugely, hugely frustrating and a huge part of the hard, hard transition. And a lot of people for them, that was the thing that just said, I couldn't do it. And so they, they checked out of that. And we'll just now say online education is nope. It's a big nope. But as the culture shifts and as our, as technology grows, and as this is the future of our kids world, like, what does it look like to teach our children and our society? Well, how do you form critical media literacy? Well, it's funny when you were talking about this, you said you remember learning about propaganda. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, you know, even in my like extremely fundamentalist, patriarchal, racist, you know, all the bad stuff, school, we also learned about propaganda. But it was something that happened somewhere else. It was those people who had propaganda. There was no discussion of how propaganda is a tool that we find everywhere. And actually, I was immersed in propaganda. You know, I was immersed in propaganda. While, and so even the discussion of propaganda became about um, making it seem like the world was a bad place out there and everything in here is good. So, I mean, it just goes to show how, you know, it, for me, so much of educating kids and helping them to foster a sense of openness to the world and humility and vulnerability and, you know, all the things that are enemies to extremism is about admitting 
that that we get some things wrong. You know, it's, it starts in those close spaces of truth telling. You know, I get back to this point about telling the truth and telling the whole truth and not being afraid of the truth. It's such a simple point. But I find so much of my work on language, on some of the most significant, most significant uses of language have been about minimizing the truth and obscuring the truth, making it seem like things are simpler than they are, or making it seem like, you know, our violence wasn't as bad as people say it is, minimizing the truth. So to me, working against propaganda has to begin by um, adopting a posture of humility and honesty in a way that is radic radical. Um, and that's what I, you know, I, I, I live, I try to live that out, not just with my kids, but also in my relationships. I mean, that, that's something that I, I really have, have tried to embrace. And it's not, it, you know, I, it's not my nature. <laughs> it's not Ooh. in most people's nature. I think we, we're, we're, hi we're like Adam, we we're hiding from what we've done. I think about, I have thought in the past about how like the, so you have God, as author and you have Jesus as word made flesh. And then it talks about the spirit is the spirit of truth. Mm. And I like to think of like truth. If, if God is the author and Jesus is the word made flesh, then spirit is like the, the genre. It's like the, mm. of that they write in this truth so that you have connected that, that truth to it. Um, I've, I've talked about that with people and they get to the spirit of truth as the genre. I talk about that and they're like, I don't know what you mean, but like, that's, that's very confirming to me because it does, it's, it's not just about creating a story that, because God speaks and things are created and we use words and things are created. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it is, we are able to see that through the power of the spirit, which is truth what can be created can be looked at. And like God looked on the creation and he said, this is good. We got to learn how to be fully honest. It's as basic as that. And I mean, I think another fundamental question we can be asking that connects exactly with what you're saying. And I, I mean, that is so right on that, you know, as image bearers of God, we, we mimic that creativity we, we bring things into existence with our words. We bring relationships into existence. We make sense of the world. And what world are we creating with our language? You know, this is something I, I try to get my students to do. And I teach in a secular institution, but, you know, it, the same thing applies is, you know, what world is this text constructing? Who is a part of this world? Who are the players? How are they represented? Who is missing? All this, you know, you're sort of create, looking at a picture of this. And is this something that I, that I want to be a part of? Is this something that connects with my values as a human being? And, you know, whatever my, my, the answers I have to those kind of fundamental th philosophical questions, you know, that, that's, I have those as, as a Christian, you know, we, we have those as a Christian, but it's something that I encourage my students. And I think, again, this is something I think where we can begin thinking about critical middle media literacy is asking this most fundamental question, what world is being constructed through this text that we are consuming? And to what extent does a Christian belong in this world? And, you know, 
that most basic question, we can get to the nitty gritty. You know, we can start to look at how language creates that world, what mechanisms it uses. And some of those are incredibly subtle. They're incredibly difficult that take training and practice. But if we just start with that most basic question, I think we can get to the heart of propaganda, fake wow. news. We can start to, to, to confront ourselves with um, our idols and the extent to which we are, you know, we are resisting um, the incredible liberty of the gospel that extends to all people. And, and, and it is not, it's nothing to do with extremism. Yeah, that's so good. So uh, this kind of gets to, to one of my next questions. One of our next questions is, you got a little bit to it as far as like truth telling, but is there anything else that we can do as Christ followers as those inside of the church, you know, if, if what we believe is that we know the truth and that we are living in a way that is honoring to God and honoring to neighbor, loving them, like what are we to do? What are we ethically bound to do online? It's really tricky one. I mean, I, I've just, I mean, where, where, where do we begin? It, it, it's, it's, your questions are so incredibly important, but they're also some of the most difficult to answer because they're so context bound. I mean, there, there are some people who, you know, for whatever reason, just cannot, you know, be out there online, you know, doing all this kind of activist work or, you know, so I, I'm reluctant to sort of come up with a list of things to do, but um, I, I found in all the, you know, coming from the kind of really bizarre and, and abusive environments that I grew up in, the simplest things to me are the things that are the rarest, you know? So I did identifying a lot of these patterns that we've been talking about, which will be present in any institution everywhere I go, you know, now I go into whatever kind of new group I'm in and I just say, what's going on here, you know? And I start to pay attention and, and look for opportunities to ask difficult questions, to, to present myself as a, as a kind of, you know, not, not a hiding person, but an honest person. I tell people about my struggles. I talk about my, my problems. And that always, that is to me, when I'm able to do that, when I'm courageous enough to do that, that creates opportunities to love people. And it opens up the door for them to then you know, talk, start telling the truth about what's going on in their lives. And that's where the beautiful things happen. My, my kind of approach to online behavior is to be telling the truth, but also to be a thorn in the side. But also I kind of like, I sort of see it as I'm raising a flag to, I, to mark myself out as somebody who can be approached about difficult questions. And that happens. That's the kind of beauty of it. I just, you know, I love how you know, I'll, I'll just, I don't know. You say something that you think is unpopular, like, okay. I mean, if I just sort of put it in a very fundamental like level, I often say online the things that I wish I could have said 10, 20, 30 years ago, the things that the violent people in my life wanted to stay hidden. And because of my experience, I know what those things are. I always say those things. And I always think this is the thing that needs to be said. And that's raising a flag. To, to make it safe for other people who feel burdened with those same things, but who feel like they can't talk about it for whatever reason, because they're not in the place of freedom that I'm in. And I've spent my life getting to that place where I can speak the truth without threat. I mean, there, there is still threat, but 
it's much more minimized. So for whatever reason, people who cannot speak the way that I can, who've been hindered by some violent person who's there with them in the room, or, you know, they've been, they're afraid for something, you know, they, they see, okay, here's somebody I can talk to. And so that then creates this micro community, then, you know, we're moving away from the huge mass of Twitter to this intimate place where we might have a Zoom conversation or we might, you know, message each other. And that is where the most beautiful and wonderful things happen. So I live for those opportunities. And um, again, I sort of think I'm giving that gift to myself as a child. You know, I think I'm going to, I feel quite emotional about this, but um, because I've been in, I've been in these harsh and, and, and difficult places, I do, I try to be the kind of person that I wish had been around when I was a kid or when I was, you know, a young person and feeling really alone and isolated and, you know, afraid. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I, I think sort of maybe in summary, I think, you know, to be responsible online, to be kind of a person of love, a person of Christ in the places we move in is, is just as simple as telling the truth and keeping at the core of our being you know, who Christ is and what he's done. You know, the love that he has for us. It's so simple. It's, 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 um, but, in, and yet it's so elusive. Well, no, I think that's a, a wonderful answer. Um, so I, I I'm reminded of a conversation we had at, at our church staff meeting uh, about Galatians and kind of the the language Paul was using when he's talking about the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of the, the flesh and how you know the, the fruit of the flesh, the spirit of the flesh, you know, it, the works of the flesh are obvious. Here's what they are. The fruit of the spirit is this, and there is no law against it. But you know, we often will kind of isolate that paragraph out of this letter that was Paul was saying, like, why are you holding to the law? You were living a life that wasn't, and now you've come back. And, and the context of the fruit of the spirit is in the very, in, in chapter six, where we've kind of broken it off, but he says, bear one another's burdens. If you think you were better, if you think you are something, be warned, you are, you're nothing. And so this idea of the, the, even in the living out the fruit of the spirit, don't compare. You have nothing to claim of your own of I am better. And so I was reminded of that in the middle of our conversation. And as you talk about, like, there's no real, like, this is the way that you should do this. There's no real list that we can go down, right? Even like the fruit of the spirit is very much like they're, it's born of God. And so there is no law around it. There is no binding it because God's going to let those characteristics out as he pleases. And for each one of us, they will, they will in context in those micro communities will play out differently, but they come from the same spirit. They come from the same God. And You know, you said you said something about speaking to the child, right? And the advocating for the child that you know you wish could have said these things. And I think I think so much like that's one. It's a beautiful statement. It's something that I've said as well. 
and conversations that like, I don't want to show up as the 12 year old internally that, that sometimes comes around. I want to show up as the 29 year old, you know, who has had life experience and who understands uh, the things that, that I've been involved in and who has thoughts and, and hears from the Lord and studies and, and isn't just this kid who has rose-colored glasses looking out at the world, right? The, the way that we can uh, just, isn't it so interesting, at least for me, I'm, I'm processing right now. So if you're listening and this doesn't make any sense, it's okay. Uh, it's okay to like think, Hector, no, you're wrong. But the, the, we're talking about the power of language. We're talking about the power, you know, reminder of James and the power of the tongue. We talked about creating worlds, the power of destroying worlds. And this simple, like, tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Honor what's true. And the power that that has to open the door to larger conversations. Um, you talked about being vulnerable. You talked about advocacy. We've talked about um, kind of normalizing that we are not all together. and that our motives are not always pure. Like we cannot present ourselves as these pure beings and pure organizations. And all of that comes from, let's just live what it is to be truth tellers. Yeah. And be open to the disruption of the spirit, you know, and all these things. And it's just such a beautiful, I just, I live for, I just live for that. I, you know, I, I'm thinking again about Babel, but it's, you know, even language, we want to have these kind of, a lot of Christians I talk to about language, they just simplify it and think it's just about a list of rules or they want to know what, what's the good language, what's the bad language. Like there, there is no good and bad language. It's about how you use it. It's a tool. It's a kind of mysterious thing that can be used for, but it has to flow, you know, it flows out of the heart. And, you know, the, the, even truth telling. It's about knowing which truth is right in the moment to speak and which truth is not right. Um, you know, I, I, I was speaking to someone recently who was like appalled because I said, you know, she was like, there, there was a person in her life who was really hurting. And she said, oh, that person just told me something that was really incorrect. And I, you know, I said well, to them, well, no, that's wrong. I said, but it's not, so, <laughs> that's not the point. In that moment, truth is, is, is something different. <laughs> And, you know, that that's something that cannot be captured in some kind of structure. It can't be captured in some kind of list of rules. It's something that flows from the spirit. It flows from that union with Christ. And if we lean into that, we, you know, we, we, we surround ourselves with people who love the Lord. You know, we, we immerse ourselves in the scripture. You know, we, we spend time meditating on the attributes of God. He promises, he promises his spirit will be here. That is something we can we can be guaranteed of. We don't have to be afraid. Um, and it's, it's so wonderful. It's so liberating. I, I'm reminded of, I think it was, I think it was uh, Phil Yancey. I heard say this, and this is, you know, several decades ago. So, but it, it was in essence that speaking 
love without truth is a lie, but speaking truth without love is Mm. no truth either. And if you try to feed someone truth absent of love, they're not going to, they're not going to, it's not going to make a meal. They're not going to do anything with it. It's going to be undigestible because they won't even let it in. When you talked about your younger self, like I'm, I'm was reminded this morning, I was on Twitter and I saw a post from a friend that I had when I was in high school about an experience he had that I knew nothing about where he was called terrible names and beaten. And he was responding to someone talking about the casual way that in the nineties, people would say that's so, and then they would follow it. There was, you either had two choices of the words you were going to put into that blank and neither of them are appropriate or good or kind or helpful. And I had no idea that he had that experience. We went to different schools, but we were in youth group together. And I remember as I read that, I I thought back and I've thought back about conversations that he and I had that I didn't understand what he was saying to me. I had no idea what he was dealing with. He made jokes that I didn't understand or comments that I didn't understand because I didn't have the whole story. I think, and I'm, I'm so sorry. What, 20 years later, over 20 years later, and I'm so sorry that I didn't hear him or know what he was saying. And so I think about when you, when we hear people, like what I hope I learned from that is, is even in people's jokes, and, and everything, like so much of what is said on social media is casual and, and the pace of it is so fast. I think that one of the, the things that we can do or we should do is to, to hold the reins or to allow the spirit to hold the reins long enough that we can ask ourselves, what, what am I actually listening to? What am I actually hearing here? Do I, uh, do I know what this joke is really about? Do I know what this joke is hiding for that person? Or this casual comment is hiding for that person? And that doesn't mean that they're on, on the timeline or the wall that I try to rip off their, their words and expose what's underneath for all to see. But it does mean that maybe, maybe I slow down my responses. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's a lot, a lot, a lot of thoughts going on through my mind. I'm thinking of you, Hector, like, you know, it's just a lot of, uh, it's prompting a lot of thoughts. Yeah. Well, and part of this too, right, is because we're talking about things that, as we've talked in conversation, we we're talking about two two ends or or spots in the matrix. Let's, let's say that, right? Of the opportunities for you know, we've talked about extreme violence, but then the opportunities that that are before us in these small spaces and in these one on one relationships or or you know, microcosms of community. 
the great opportunity that there is for our language, the, the way that we speak about spaces, talking about creating worlds. And it's, it, honestly, it's kind of humbling to, to, and scary. Like I, for me, it is scary to think of what worlds, what language have I not just created, but then to... But the, lang- the, the language that has created the worlds that we find ourselves trapped in. Well, I, th- I think, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, sort of following on from that, um, Sarah, about your, your, you know, thinking through all these things of seeing your, you know, that person you knew talking about something that happened to them. And, um, you know, I, I think of another kind of fundamental question that I sometimes try to ask myself about, you know, is is what's going on in whatever I'm interacting with, is it bringing me together with people? Is it fostering something good? Is it connecting me with someone else's humanity with their, you know, is it is it fostering something positive? Or is it, you know, is it contributing to something bad, something problematic, something um, dangerous, something? Um, and it, I think that's another kind of thing we can think about of, you know, so, some people will go on social media because they're really alone and, you know, they, they feel it's the only place that they can talk about things because they have no one close by. And so social media offers an opportunity for them to try to find those people. And so, you know, they'll they'll say things that they could never say before or that they, you know, have been burdened by for years because it's given them an outlet for that. And they're looking for somebody to hear it. And, you know, another challenge with that is that we could spend all day trying to meet the pe- needs of everybody we see online who's looking for help. You know? And that can also become all consuming. And, you know, I, I can admit I've I've been there where I just feel overwhelmed with burden. You know, there's so much hurt in the world and we, we see it all there. And it's sometimes it's people we know and we just, you know, we think, oh, you know, I, what can I do? I, what can I do about that? And, and we feel helpless. <laughs> so, it, so, Valerie, um, we have two questions we ask at the end of every episode. Um, So we wanted to hear about a time that you were like intentionally using Twitter or social media in general and using your language online and the gifts that you have to create space for God to speak or to create a place for safety or for reconciliation. And it didn't go well. And what did you learn from that? I think I'm, I think what I'm stuck on is maybe the the concept of not going well, because (laughs) there's a sense in which, I mean, I, I'm not sure what I would classify as like not going well online. I mean, maybe I can think of it in terms of, okay, there's a sense in which not going well could mean I was trying to do something positive. I was trying to do something meaningful and good. And the opposite happened. On the other hand, I sort of think I'm, it's not that those times haven't happened. I do a lot of like really disruptive things on social media. Um, I do a lot of exposing of abusive and violent people. 
And I tend to talk about situations where people have been harmed and I confront those people. I mean, that, that, that kind of work has led to me losing friends and losing my family. It's led to me leaving my church. I've paid a pretty heavy cost for talking about these things. And I know I haven't always done it in the right way. I, I sort of can be sometimes a bull in a china shop because I feel so strongly about things. And I think to myself, oh, that wasn't the right way. I was too forceful. I, I'm really struggling because I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to pinpoint a time when I could say, okay, definitely that was a time when things went wrong. Bad things have happened. And, you know, I've, I've given some examples of, of those bad things happening. But I sort of don't really, I, I can't really pinpoint a time when I can say 100% and went wrong. I can sort of, I can think of a time when I was a bit too confrontational and mm -hmm. I hurt people's feelings and I had to go and apologize to my friends. So that's happened to me in the last couple of years um, in, the, in the process of leaving my church. I, you know, I think quite understandably, and I can speak with compassion towards myself, I had been pushed to a point where I was at breaking point and I kind of lashed out at some of my friends. And, you know, I, I said some, I, I think I posted something on Facebook at one point about how, <laughs> I, I mean, it, it was an instance of truth telling, you know, I was saying something that was definitely true and that was a problem in the church, but it was too much. I think it was too much for people. So I had to go and apologize. And so, you know, I could have said, I, I was thinking to myself, well, I was right. You know, I'd said something that was true. I'd said something that needed to be said, but I had already, you know, <laughs> it's just such a delicate balance when you're um, confronting problems and especially problems in institutions. Um, and I, I, I can honestly say I, I don't have some kind of, um, perfect wisdom on this. I fumble my way along in all of this, you know, all the work that I do, all the kind of, um, if you can call it activism that I do, I fumble my way along and I say, sorry, a lot. Um, but it's not some like I'm getting a hundred percent right or getting a hundred percent wrong. It's all just kind of mixed up and, and muddled up and I'm, I'm just doing the best I can. And I try to say, sorry, when I, you know, when I see that relationships that are important to me or that, you know, have been harmed. Um, that's the best I can do. Yeah, I think that, I mean, that goes back to the the speaking truth without love is, is no truth at all. Um, and I think about like, uh, so when I was learning how to drive, we went into, my dad and I were driving and we were driving into the mall parking lot from the main road. And we came to a place where I did not have a, the oncoming traffic does not stop, but the exiting, the traffic exiting the mall had to, they had stop signs. This is a common mall parking lot setup. Okay. And I, I came and I just continued going and this other car that should have stopped started going as well. And, you know, my, there is this moment of panic and we get to the other side and everything was okay. 
And my dad was talking to me about it. I was like, I had the right of way. I had the right of way. I did everything right. And he was after me for not looking to see what was happening at these other stop signs. And, and I just kept saying, I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Why are you upset with me? And he said, you know, you can be right, but you can be dead right. Like you can, you can be absolutely right and still get nailed by someone. And so you have to be aware of, of your surroundings and be prepared that even when you're right, you might need to hit, hit the brakes um, or react responsibly. Yeah. And that, that is just so, so hard. I don't, I don't think, I don't know. I, I guess, yeah, there, there, you know, I go back to Hector's point earlier about, you know, that there just is no formula. <laughs> there is no formula for love. There yeah. is no formula for truth telling. <laughs> we pray and ask God for help. And every day we, you know, we, we ask forgiveness and thank him for his mercy. And we try again the next day. Um, and, but, but, but I can say that, you know, the Lord has fulfilled his promises to me in you know, that he, you know, has laid down in scripture about sanctification, about I, I, I'm so grateful for, for the growth that I've seen in my life. And I just, I feel excited, you know, I, I, I just, I feel excited about how he's going to change me and, and, and help me as I go along this journey. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Do you have anything else? Yeah, we don't want to go out on a on a downer. We want to hear about the time that you were that it went well, that you were speaking truth and you did it loving and you lovingly and you saw God move and changes. Online too. Oh, it does too. Stop it, Hector. <laughs> well, I think again, like it, to me, it's all a mix. I I I'm getting so much wrong and so much right at the same time. Every time I put myself out there, I really struggle to identify a time where I can say, you know, wow, that was that was right on because I tend to make a lot of mess and I also tend to see a lot of joy. And those two things always are together. I mean, the the pain and the beauty for me are almost they they just come together in my life in a kind of like partnership that I seem not to escape from and it can be really intense. I was talking to a friend recently about this and she was just like, it just, you know, she, she is the same. She's like, it just feels like, you know, everything is so major, but that's how it is for me. Like I, I don't have these moments where I'm just like, yeah, that was right on. It's always, man, I made a mess there. Thank God, you know, some joy came out of it because I, you know, I've just been connected with the most wonderful people. And, you know, at the same time, I've made a lot of, I have, I don't, I don't want to say it's enemies, but you know, people really hate me <laughs> online. Um, but yeah, the, the tension between that, that pain, the mess, the mix, the mess up, the, the sin that is just, you know, and, and the, the beauty and the mystery and the glory is always together for me. It's always mixed up and mingling. That's my, that's my, that's the best I can do. I think Sarah, I think you probably are, like the, the vibe I get off you, the read I have of you is that you look at the overarching story and you like, you see the, the individual words in these moments, but they're part of a bigger picture. And so like, when you look for these, 
these moments, it's also, it's, it's not without the whole story, you know? And so the, that there is not a, not a fear of the bittersweet that is life. Yeah. And not needing, not needing to say, well, this was only bitter and this was only sweet, but to be able to recognize that life is full of both. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a, it's a fun conversation. Just, I really appreciate you and just even learning a little bit of, of the, all the terms. We're going to have to have a glossary, I think, you know, uh, no, but, but I, I did enjoy the conversation and just talking about language. And, you know, I, I think if, if no one is guessed by now, we know that that language is important, but it's so, I think, important for us to also talk to someone who lives in this world of looking at language and, you know, especially as for us here in America, you know, it's not just America. Like I think the world stands to learn from what's happening uh, right now and and what's being revealed. And um, yeah, I think for me, even today, this week, not today, but this week, kind of looking at uh, everything that's coming out of Texas, with Uvalde, I, I went to college in that town and um, grew up about 40 minutes. And so just kind of seeing this, the language, the power of language. So anyway, I'll stop processing. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for, for being with us today, Valerie. Just, You're a good company. It was a pleasure to talk to us. Yeah. Thank you. I'm the same way. I'm always like here and there, everywhere. It's a mess. (laughs) Not saying you're a mess. I'm just, I'm also, you know, just the kind of processing and bouncing around is, it's, it's my happy place. So I'm I'm really glad to have have met you both and talked to you. It's, it's been such a pleasure. It's been, it's been good to have your company in this conversation. Yes. Well, hey, thanks again for joining us uh, on the Pocket Pulpit. Um, again, just exploring the power, the opportunity, the, the many um, the many roads that one can take, that the church can take, that individuals can take in using and leveraging uh, the tools and the spaces of online for the purposes uh, of ministry, of work, alongside the spirit um thank you so much for for joining us um and we'll catch you next time all right we'll see y'all